Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. If you don't have it, go out and get it. Great Jewish programming 24-6. And uh, we are halfway through 2020. And it has been a whirlwind as far as politics, been a whirlwind on every front. What a year we have going on. Sea changes, coronavirus. We've really been upended, turned upside down and around. Can't think of enough cliches in order to explain it. Certainly seemed going into this spring, late winter that President Trump was going to endure four years without a major league crisis. Alas, things have been entirely upended. And uh, it's, uh, well, this is possibly one of the most consequential crises. I'm talking about coronavirus. Then on top of that, I think we have the Black Lives Matter slash racial injustice slash police brutality movement that's going on that he seems to be failing to grasp, although other Republicans are certainly stepping up, particularly Senator Tim Scott. Um, absolutely fantastic interviews over the weekend that I saw, and it's a shame, as I said last week, that the Democrats don't seem to want to play politics once again. Everybody plays politics. I mean, that's that's what we do, but in the end, not coming along to enact police reform, which is really what we should be about, not defund the police, not get rid of the police, not abolish the police. 99%, you want to argue 98% of officers are good and decent and hardworking and committed people to their communities. You want to say it's 97.8%. Yes, there are bad apples out there. That doesn't mean we get rid of the entire structure, the entire construct of policing and protecting our communities. So it's so important that we get this right and that we do it right. And yes, there was a problem. It was a problem. And the problem has become is that from where I sit, And for where many Americans are sitting right now, President Trump doesn't seem to grasp the issue and seems to be out of step and out of sync with a lot of the American people. And you want to say out there, okay, well, he's battling, he's battling forces, he's battling the deep state, and he's battling the establishment and the entrenched interests. I get that. And I think that he has proven that he's be willing to disrupt. He's willing to do things a little bit differently. He's willing to engage and slay some of the sacred cows. But at the same time, it's the lack of empathy. It's the lack of shared concern that he seems to not want to engage in that a lot of the American people are looking for. And they're looking for that leadership there. And I think that that's what where we stand and we've talked about the polls in the last couple of weeks, and I want to address them quickly. You know, kind of as we get around a little bit of a roundup after the first half of the year. And as I said, it's just been an extraordinary time. Uh, coronavirus is, is definitely back. I don't think this is the second wave. I mean, this is really the first wave in a lot of states. And 
it just continues to climb. And then, of course, we have, on top of that, a crisis of intelligence, this reporting that we found out that the Russians were paying bounties on the heads of American soldiers in Afghanistan for whatever reasons, for whatever reason they have. And unfortunately, there seems to be a problem with how that intelligence was getting or whether it was getting to the president altogether. And that's a something we have discussed. But first, the polling. Oh, and then huge, absolutely huge ruling from the Supreme Court. A number of big rulings, but this particular one for our community and for our religious education, Espinoza versus Montana. And the Supreme Court essentially ruled and struck down Blaine amendments. Get to that in a second. So, again, absolutely extraordinary week going on. New York stepping back a little bit from opening as other states. Coronavirus continues to rage. And how the administration is dealing with that, and they're dealing with that in different ways, and we've seen a little bit a softening on the anti-masking and the like. But CNBC poll released yesterday. CNBC, I don't think, is necessarily going to be looked at, even though part of the NBC family, I don't know that I look at them as a leftist network. Um, Certainly the viewership of CNBC is going to be in the higher income levels, those that tend to support Republicans in many cases, some that don't. But 52% of voters in battleground states say President Trump's response to the killing of George Floyd and protests for criminal justice reform was mostly harmful. Now, they're not just saying they disapprove, but they're saying that his response was harmful. And we know that the president retweeted, but then took down at the request of Senator Scott, a video from the Villages, which is this huge, massive retirement community in central Florida, north of Orlando of a protest and counter-protest, and that was a little messy little thing there. Again, not every calling Trump supporters racist, but then, of course, the Trump supporter responds, white power, which is just a term that fans the flames of nastiness and resentment. Only intention is to inflame, not calm. And... 52% of voters in the battleground states. Voters in battleground states remain seriously concerned about coronavirus, 64%. And they're more concerned about the family's health and safety than the impact on their family's finances. That means the president's messaging, the White House's messaging is off here because they make it the binary choice. You're either concerned about the economy or you're concerned about the economy. I'm sorry, the economy or health and safety, right? You can't you can't have both, so we have to go with the economy because, and most people would choose the economy because they care about their economic health. Well, that's actually not true. Two-thirds of voters care more about the health and safety of their family. 59% of battleground voters say it is not safe to attend a protest. 56% say it is unsafe to attend a rally. 27% say it is safe to attend a large indoor sporting event, and 37% say it is safe to attend an outdoor sporting event. 
So I think we see here why nobody showed up in Tulsa. Not nobody. 6,200 people showed up in Tulsa. And 3,000 people showed up at that rally in Arizona. And those are big numbers. But the million people that they were looking for, or even the 18,000 they were looking for to fill the arena, clearly was not going to happen. Battleground voters say racism and discrimination is the third most important issue in the upcoming presidential election behind health care and drug costs. And then number two, the economy, jobs, and cost of living. COVID-19 itself is a standalone issue, as opposed to just health care, is in the fourth place. So that means that racial tension, racial issues have catapulted towards the front of the consciousness of not just urban voters, not just minority voters, not just people of color, but to the cap- to catapulted to the front of the consciousness of the American people in general. 71% majority of battleground voters have a favorable opinions of peaceful protests. And most of the protests themselves are peaceful, despite the fact that some on the right want to call them terrorism. And we've seen incredible pictures of looting and vandalism and the like, and the, there's no denying that. We've seen anti-Semitism. We saw that in a video that was taken of Black Lives Matter protest in D.C. A very sickening video of protesters talking about Israel killing babies. Disgusting. And I don't know exactly what it is that these protesters have, that they have to decide that this somehow, the uh, number one, the other rising of our people, meaning Jews, that we are not victims of racism and bigotry. And to single out our homeland, our state, our aspirations of national, of a national entity for, to, to dismiss those when they want to push for their own rights, it just, of course, seems absurd. A uh, little bit about the swing states specifically. Arizona, Biden 45, Trump 44. Okay, very narrow, obviously. But at the same time, that Senate race, I think, is, a, is 10 points in favor of Mark Kelly, the Democrat. Florida, Biden 50, Trump 43. That has got to be very alarming. Michigan, Biden 47, Trump 45. And remember, I'm taking these in the context of the polling that's been passed, that has been taken over the last couple of weeks. And this was from June 12th to 14th, I believe these were taken. Michigan, Biden 47, Trump 45. North Carolina, Biden 47, Trump 45. Pennsylvania, Biden 49, Trump 46. Wisconsin, Biden 48, Trump 44. Now, it happens to be, and let's just be clear, the, many of these within the margin of error. This is 2,408 likely voters across these six states. It's a, lot, it's a pretty decent sample size. Um, Trump's approval rating is at the lowest level since February 2019. He, got that, he had, did have that bump in March and April. And this is not insurmountable. There's plenty of time, plenty of time to go in this race. 
a lot can change. There are the debates, there are the conventions, although we don't exactly know what the conventions are going to look like. There's a lot that can change. The problem is the trend lines for the Republicans right now are going in the wrong direction. The other issue is the president has to govern. He's in office. The things that the government does all accrue to him. And essentially by disappearing during throughout the corona crisis, Joe Biden has allowed Donald Trump to run against Donald Trump. And that's not what you want as in this type of election. You don't want this to be, if you're a Republican strategist, you do not want this to be a referendum on President Trump. Trump successfully made the last election a referendum on Hillary Clinton. And he did it well. But he's the incumbent. He has to wear all the faults and the warts of incumbency. And right now, on the big issues that Americans care about, health care, health and safety, COVID, race relations, he's not there. He is not at the point where most Americans are happy with his leadership. And as I said, it's just confusing for a lot of people right now because you see the news with regard to the Russian bounty and it's hard for the White House to keep its story straight. Did they know about this? How come the president didn't know? The president of the United States is supposed to have more information and the better information than any person on the earth. He has should have access to the most information. And they're not denying that the reports existed. They're not redying. They're saying, well, it wasn't verified. Okay, fine, fair. They're not denying that they briefed other countries, meaning NATO allies who were also in Afghanistan, who also might have to do this. So essentially they're telling the British about this intelligence, but they're not telling the president. Again, he's supposed to have the best information. He was not briefed verbally, but it might have been in his presidential daily brief, which I think that we can consensus that we know that, and it's fine if the president wants to consume information verbally, orally, videoly, and not want to read the entire presidential daily brief. That's his prerogative to do, but to leave out things that are in there that are important that he should know about, and then his response should be, I want to know more about this. Or somebody should say they want to know more, or we need to verify this. The president got on TV yesterday and saying it's a hoax, but nobody else in Washington is saying that thing. And we're all over the place. The White House is kind of saying it's unverified. They're not saying it's a hoax. We're briefing. Why are we briefing the congressional staffers about this? The messaging is all over. And, you know, when it comes down to it, what are the options? Okay, number one, it's not true. This didn't happen. This Russian program to go ahead and pay the Taliban to kill American soldiers, it didn't happen. What? It's not true. I don't. That does not make it a hoax. I'm not sure it makes it a hoax. It, you can have reports of intelligence and people can put it together and draw. It's not verified and they might. Okay. Number two, it's true, but nobody told the president. That's a problem. Because this would be a big thing. I understand there's a lot of things out there, but the fact that there might have been a rumor or a suspicion or a hunch or a 
credible enough a credible enough report based on money trail, etc., that the president should know that this is being talked about, that there might be a possibility of this. So that's not good. It was in there. He heard about it, or it was in there, but he didn't read it. And nobody told him about it. Or they thought he knew about it, and he didn't have any reaction. Okay, that's his decision as president, to not take any action against Russia. However, it's troubling. I think a lot of members of Congress, a lot of Americans would be, don't see Russia as an ally. They don't see Russia as a friend. And I think they would want some sort of response to this. And even worse, I guess, is that he heard about it, he knew about it, he crystallized it, he accept, he internalized it, and then ordered it to be buried because he didn't want it to get in the way of better relations with Russia. And we know the Russian blind spot, and he doesn't want to talk about Russia, he doesn't want to hear about Russia, he doesn't want to talk about election security, Russian hacking, etc. It's all a big hoax. It's the whole part of the Russian collusion hoax. At the same time, he wants to invite Russia to be part of the G7. Okay. I don't need to say any more with regard to that. Uh, the president has some, some understandable aversion with regard to Russia, given what's happened. But the answer should not be, I didn't know about it, no one told me, and I never followed up at this point. Not, we'll get to the bottom of this, but just, I didn't know about it. That seems to have been the Russia, That seems to have been the White House line. Nobody told the president. It wasn't clear. It wasn't verified. And the president didn't seem to be upset about it that nobody told him about it, even though it's kind of a bombshell. They seem to have been unprepared for the idea that it was a bombshell. And the New York Times always writes fake news with regard to Russia. Okay, but they didn't deny any of the substance of the issues. And what about the staff? What about the National Security Advisor? I mean, the National Security Advisor basically has two roles. One is to chair the National Security Council. So that's the decision-making process. But the other one is that the president has the best intelligence and access to the best information that in the world of anybody. So the excuse of, well, the briefer didn't tell him about it, or they didn't get to it, or or the briefer, who is a woman, decided that she was going to leave this out because it wasn't verified, etc. I don't buy it. I don't think that that's what makes sense. I do. Do we all think that the president shouldn't be given them more information? We should give him less information. Should we not err on the side of giving more information and let him make the decisions that he's supposed to? That's the job. So, again, going down this road is something that I think is going to be problematic for the president, but I think it's also problematic for his Republican allies who have not gone down the Russia road with him. And we see some fraying. We don't see people distancing. The Republicans have been unwilling to distance themselves from the president and because he 
is a been a great campaigner on their behalf, but a lot of them are just walking out. Okay, uh, amazing tweet from Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report, who's a great political analyst. When President Trump took office in January 2017, there were 241 Republicans in the House. Since then, 115, that's 48%, have either retired, resigned, been defeated, or are retiring in 2020. The normal attrition rate is 42%. Uh, in the change years after a presidency, okay, between the two, the first term of... uh, So now we have... um, Sorry, the... This is a very, very high number, 115 of them. Uh, 42% were the losses in 2008 uh, that Republicans suffered in the House. So this is with the Republicans winning in 2016, and 48% are now gone by the time, by the end of that four years. Uh, We saw a five-term representative, Scott Tipton of Colorado, be defeated in his primary by a QAnon conspiracy theorist. I don't really want to get into the whole Q thing. I just don't even, I can't really get my arms around that one. Lauren Boebert. So we see that. Um, things are things are interesting. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Um, great quote from Chris Ruddy of Newsmax, friend of the president, great defender of the president on TV. But he's kind of summing up where the Republican Party is right now as they face the prospect of looking at uh, the reelection in 2020. The campaign is hyper-focused on playing to the base. I think that's a mistake, said Chris Ruddy. Politics are about addition, not subtraction. In this environment, the president has a lot to do of plus, plus, plus addition signs right now with every group that he possibly can. Instead, with the white power tweet, with the mask issue, and doubling down and tripling down on, on not wearing masks, um, for Mike Pence coming at, at a coronavirus briefing and saying we've won as most American states are seeing a huge spike in corona infections. Many of them are seeing short are seeing a high spike in hospitalizations. This is um this is a trying time. This is a difficult time. It's a difficult time for the country. And we are seeing a we're seeing a a, a challenge. We're seeing a, a a crisis, and the administration is not where it needs to be as far as leveling with the American people. Saying, you know what, July, August, those are slow times. Yes, we've had economic, but we're going to take hits. We're going to try and instead they've said we we did it. We slowed the spread. I mean, Jared Kushner got on TV a month ago and said, it's over, we won. And let's remember what happened to George W. Bush when he said mission accomplished and gave that famous speech on the aircraft carrier when afterward Iraq went to, went to pot, as they say. 
Okay, I want to discuss for a second the Montana, the Espinosa case, because I think this is a really, really important. Oh, one thing, just from a guy I usually criticize all the time, and I think he said it best. Uh, party, this week they're tracing uh, a whole bunch of coronavirus infections in Rockland County in a party that was in Nyack. And for the first time, I don't see Ed, Ed Day taking his wrath out on County Executive of Rockland County, who's not a friend of the Orthodox community. Um, I don't see him taking his wrath out on the Orthodox. I see him actually appropriately identifying the issue was, uh, sorry, identifying the culprits as uh, non-Orthodox spreaders of corona. Anyway, it seems that the host has was symptomatic. Eight of the people have already tested positive. But now the attendees do not want to answer questions about contact tracing. So the county is subpoenaing them and forcing them to do it. And I think that this is a great quote from the county executive at day. I will not allow the health of our county to be compromised because of ignorance, stupidity, or obstinance, or anything else. And I think that's what it comes down to. And I think that that is a national type of thing here. Because we should not allow the health to be compromised because of ignorance, stupidity, and obstinance. And that's what it comes down to, people who don't seem to be able to follow social distancing, to wear masks when necessary, or to keep others from getting sick. Ignorance, stupidity, obstinance. Okay, Espinosa versus Montana. This is a huge ruling. The Blaine Amendments were a anti-Catholic movement in the 1800s. Senator Blaine from Maine they wanted to stop the growth of Catholic religious schools. This was It was all over the place. And dollars cannot go to parochial schools. What happened here? They Montana had a scholarship program that was open to private schools, meaning non-denominational, sorry, non-religious private schools, scholarship program that the school choice. And they said that religious schools can't participate. Supreme Court said, if you don't have to offer scholarships for private school, you don't have to do that. But if you do... You cannot tell religious schools they may not participate in that. And essentially what they said is that the Blaine Amendment, which Montana had, and the Montana Supreme Court had ruled that their Blaine Amendment had said that no aid to parochial schools, to parochial education, they said that that was unconstitutional. That violates the First Amendment. And I think that seems obvious to most Americans or to many Americans who uh, care about this issue is that you cannot discriminate just becoming just because they are religious and and giving money to a uh, religious education does not promote a religion uh, per se. Just like public schools back then were Protestant schools, they were not not religious. Public schools became were were religious in the United States. Now they're entirely secular, which in itself. We can have a debate about that, whether that constitutes a certain amount of proselytizing, creating some kind of public religion. But the fact is that this is a huge victory for the movement of fairness, to bring fairness to religious, to, I'm sorry, to the funding of education. That money, no matter where a child, that parents should decide, not the society, not the government should decide where people should send their children or how to educate their children or how to best uh uh, provide for their education and not the state. And if the state has a, wants to do uh, fund educational choice, 
they should do it across the board for those that want to have instill their children with religious values. You cannot discriminate based on the fact that somebody is religious and that wants religious values. And this is a huge thing. Many states have Blaine amendments, I think more than 20, including New York. Hopefully this will have to be rethought. There's a long road to go on the school choice uh, movement and a long political road. But in many ways, the Supreme Court has thankfully ruled appropriately that the United States government, the government of the United States or state governments should not discriminate against somebody just because they are religious and choose to follow their faith. That's it for this week here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.